Glad you're here. This semester we are doing a series on relationships. Uh, man, it's hard to condense that into a semester. Uh, in, very, in a very real way, the whole entire Bible is about relationships. And so even tonight, like the topic is loving others. How do you uh, cover that in one night? Um, how do you talk about what really is the subject of the Bible from beginning to end? Um, we were made to love God, uh, as we're going to look at in our passage here in 1 John, to know and rely on his love for us so that we could love others. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, right? The two great commandments. And yet, you know, we've got one semester to focus on it in particular. So what we will be having at the end of this time is a few minutes for questions. So if I say something that you're curious about or it raises a question for you or I don't touch on something that you are interested in, know that we'll have a couple minutes for questions at the end. So, loving others. The first thing I guess to say is that God commands us to love. Now, if you've been around Christian circles... Um, don't presume that all of you guys are Christians, but don't know where you're coming from, various places, I imagine. But if you've been around Christians at all, you've probably heard them talk about how God tells us that we're to love other people. In some ways, that's kind of a strange countercultural thing in our day and age, because in, from, in, in many ways we feel that love is something that's free and spontaneous or it's not real. And so even to say that God calls us or commands us even to love others Already, um, God is meddling with things that we think are really ours, which is what we do with our time, what we do with our emotions, what we do with our actions, with our feelings. And yet, God does call us to love. And this first passage we're going to look at is on the top of the outline. It's from 1 John, the letter of 1 John, chapter 4. Listen to this. This is God's word. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. So the Bible tells us that we're to love, but I would submit to you that being told to love is not enough. I know a lot of people, you know, sometimes you work with college students and you'll sit down and people will want to know, you know, what is God's will for my life? And I always like to say, are you sure you really want to know? Um, what would you do with it if you actually knew it? There is that place in one of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians where he says, this is God's will, that you flee sexual immorality. So, you know, work on that, and when you're ready, then I'll give you some more. Now, we have this assumption that if we just know what to do, 
we'll do it. I think it's part of kind of the overachieving, perfectionistic culture that drives uh, so many people in our culture, certainly college students and certainly Belmont students. If you just tell me what to do, uh, then I'll do it. Or that great question, is this going to be on the test? (laughs) And I would say to you, yes, this is going to be on the test. Are you supposed to love? Yes. And one day, God will call you to stand before him. And this will be on the test. But the Bible never just gives us bare commands. I think this is really tragic that for so many people, their understanding of Christianity is basically God just tells us what to do. And unfortunately, even a lot of people who are Christians, call themselves Christians, really are Christians, are confused at this point. They think that really the heart of what Christianity is about is figuring out what God wants you to do, and then you just do it. You just do it. But as you'll see, even in this passage, while we're told to love others, that comes in and around all of this stuff about God's love. And as a matter of fact, John wants to make sure right at the beginning that you don't even presume to think that your love, in some ways, can even be considered love. The way he starts this passage has always fascinated me. He says, and this is love, not that we loved God. But before he even begins to say what love is, he wants to say, and let me just tell you right off the bat, your love for God can't even register on the Richter scale of what is love. Like, it's not even, it's not even a blip. This is love. But before I even talk about what love is, you need to understand that your love for God isn't even really worthy of being called love. Because what love is, what love is, is Jesus coming as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Unless you misunderstand, when it talks about Jesus coming as an atoning sacrifice for sins, presupposed in that is that the people he's come for are people who would be regarded as sinners. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The Bible starts with this idea that we are created to be in relationship with God and with others. Because even before sin comes into the world, before brokenness comes into the world, God looks at man and says it's not good for him to be alone. But then brokenness comes. And rather than just thinking of sin, as so many people do, as breaking the rules, the, the really the heart of the way to think about it is rupturing a relationship where mankind said, I no longer want to have a relationship with you on your terms. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I don't know if you've ever tried to be in a relationship with somebody who demands that kind of freedom. It doesn't work very well. And you know that because we live in a culture that is trying to pursue two things at the same time that don't go together. We're trying to pursue kind of absolute autonomy and freedom to do what we want when we want. At the same time, we long for community. And we're trying to pursue two opposite goals at the same time and wondering why we're so miserable and so lonely. It's it's not coincidental that in a culture that so values individual freedom, there is an epidemic of loneliness and alienation. Because for you to be in any relationship requires that you sacrifice your autonomy, and your freedom. So understand that. But here's, here's, here's what John is saying here, is that the people that God sends his son to be a sacrifice for are people who have ruptured relationship 
with God. If you want to understand what love is, you need to understand that love, the way the Bible talks about it, to really understand God's love, it's not God showing love to people who are really great people, who just need a little, a little instruction or a little advice. It's God sending his son, his perfect son, whom he loved deeper than you can imagine, sending him to die. This is what love is. Now, the reason that's so important is because one of the greatest barriers to our loving, and there are several, but one of the greatest ones actually is our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency, which often takes the form of feeling like we know how to love. I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the most miserable people to be loved by are people who are sure that they love really well. Have you, have you ever been in a relationship with somebody who's convinced that they love well, you just don't know how to receive it? Yeah. It's like, it's hopeless. Like, it's like standing at the foot of Mount Everest, like with no gear whatsoever. Like, there's no way you can, you can even broach the topic with somebody who feels that they love well. One of my favorite um, Christian counselors, a guy named Dale, Dan Allender, says it this way. He says that self-righteousness is the great killer of love. We all have a strong sense of what is legitimate to ask of us. We evaluate life by two criteria. Will I hurt? And does this seem just? The bottom line is we don't like God because he asks for more than we feel is legitimate for him to ask. In fact, if God were a CEO, we would have fired him long ago. And where this really hits the road is when we look um, here at First John 4, and we say God is calling us to love as he loves, which means we're to love our enemies. And there's lots of places in the Bible where I could have went where it says this very explicit thing. The fact is, Christianity calls you to love enemies. What right does God have to do that? Right? All I would say is, aren't you glad that God decided to love his enemies. But we go further. What's another, maybe another barrier to love? And I'd say we love to make excuses. And a lot of the excuses, I don't mean to, to completely make light of this. For, for a lot of people, legitimate pain, legitimate fear keeps us from even considering God's call to love. We can blame it on all kinds of things, but nowhere does the Bible say, because you've been hurt, therefore you no longer have to love. No, God says you're to love. As he's loved us, so we are to love. And God goes so far as to say, the way that people are going to know that I'm real is by your love. Seems pretty, pretty bold and pretty risky of God, doesn't it? I think one of the things that we try to do with this call, because the call seems so huge, is often we try to redefine love. Now, I've said already, you know, in our culture, romanticism, which still controls so much of our ideas about love, reduces love to just a feeling. And then you say, well, how in the world can God command a feeling? We just sort of write off the call, the command to love as being out of touch, unreasonable. We don't even give it much thought, because how can, how can God tell you what to feel? Of course, the Bible would say you need, to, you need to think long and hard about whether or not love is a feeling. 
And the Bible would say it's not. But more, we'll talk about that more as we go through this. Um, but then there's, in a lot of Christian circles, and even outside of Christian circles, this is sort of the, sort of the mindset of the perfectionist overachiever, which is what our culture has become in so many ways. Legalism. You could talk about it, whether it's in Christian settings or even outside of Christian settings, basically reduces love to rules and tells me, what am I supposed to do? Just tell me, Kevin, what is love and what should I do in this situation and that situation? And the Bible says that's not it either. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 122, there's this verse, love deeply from the heart. So it's not enough just to do loving things if your heart's not in it. And that raises this even to a whole other level. Not only are we supposed to love, which is more than a feeling, but we're supposed to love deeply from the heart. And then there's sort of this opposite sort of perspective, I guess, from legalism, which you might call relativism, um, which basically tries to redefine love this way. God can't really mean love, can he? I mean, that's a little extreme and unreasonable. Maybe being nice is good enough. And so we get the Southern culture, which Flannery O'Connor talked about as being haunted by Christ, without really being Christian. Maybe a lot of you have grown up in this, where people are nice, but that's not love. In some ways, I would say we live in a culture that values tolerance above, above all, but I believe tolerance is really a satanic counterfeit to love. The Bible nowhere tells you to tolerate people. But a lot of people feel that that's the best that they can hope for. And there are certain groups in our world that think that that's the best they can hope for from Christians. And that should make us weep. No, we're not called to tolerate. We're called to love. But we don't. We don't love our enemies. We don't go out of our way to love people. So how does God respond to our failure to love. And that's where I want to look at this parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan. You think we can put it up there? Yeah? No, couldn't work because we don't, couldn't get the internet. All right. Well, listen to this. It's a story that Jesus told and people listen to, so no reason you guys couldn't listen to it, right? You may be familiar with this story. If not, um, here it is. It's in Luke chapter 10. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. He said this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw the man, he passed by On the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw the man, he had compassion 
He went to the man and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answered, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, this is an interesting story. And to really understand this story, you need to understand that Samaritans and Jews hated each other. The Jews regarded the Samaritans as half-breeds. And well-documented testimony we have from the first century, I'm not making this up, the Jews hated the Samaritans. You see that even in the story because Jesus tells the story where the Samaritan is the hero and the priest and the Levite... Jewish religious leaders don't help the man, but then the Samaritan helps the man. And did you hear what the lawyer said at the end when Jesus says, which one showed him mercy? Who, who, was, the, who was the one who loved him? Right? Who was the neighbor to him? The guy can't even say the Samaritan. He can't even say it. Can't even say it. You've got to know he's seething. At Jesus. Jesus has tricked him. So all he can say is the one who showed him mercy. Right? Now I know this story has been told. I'm sure you've heard this story told. And I think it's usually told from the perspective of trying to make you feel like you just need to help people instead of walking around them. And I guess at some point, maybe, you know, that, that's a legitimate interpretation. But I actually think that there's something more and deeper in this parable. Kenneth Bailey, who is a, um, an expert in Middle Eastern culture, has lived most of his life and taught in seminaries in places like Syria and Lebanon and Damascus and all these kinds of places, um, has spent really his entire ministerial career telling parables to Middle Eastern peasants and gauging their reaction because he contends that often in the parables there's some shocking detail that the culture would help you understand. And sometimes it's different than the way Westerners might hear the parable. And he argues, I think very persuasively, that when we hear this parable, most of us assume that we're the Levite or the priest and we need to become like the Samaritan. That this parable is really a parable, be like the Samaritan. But if you, if you understand the context in which this is beginning to happen in Jesus' ministry, Jesus doesn't tell parables from the beginning of his ministry. Do you know this? He begins to tell parables really after his first year of ministry when resistance begins to happen. And this lawyer is one of those critics of Jesus. And if you read the, the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that regularly people are criticizing Jesus for doing what? Loving people that don't deserve it. Loving people who really are offensive to God. And therefore, all the religious leaders say they should be offensive to Jesus and no self-respecting religious leader would touch these people. 
let alone eat with them, let alone be touched by them, the kind of stuff that Jesus did that upset them left and right. And what if you think of this parable and you begin to understand that Jesus is offering a criticism and a defense of his own ministry? What if you think of yourself as the man bleeding the side of the road? How does that change the parable? We just read in 1 John chapter 4 that we need to know and rely on the love God has for us. And Jesus, later in the Gospel of Luke, he's going to have this story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And it's interesting because you have that, that same uh, kind of idea about, you know, two people, the one who's kind of seems to be the, the holy person and the other one who seems to be the... Um, the outcast and the, and the tax collector was seen as a really bad person, notorious sinner. And they both stand up there. And the one who says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, the tax collector, Jesus said that he went down back to his house justified. So here you have a guy wanting to justify himself. Jesus says the tax collector who cries out, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. I know most of the translations say a sinner, but actually in the Greek, there's the definite article. He's like, I'm the sinner. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, that's the guy who gets it. And as long as we read this parable as, well, I'm just the guy who just needs to tweak my loving a little bit. I just need to change my route a little bit and just make a little course correction. Maybe we're not really entering into how radical the gospel is. And Ken Bailey says, like, what you need to understand is for a Samaritan to take a beat-up Jewish man into a Jewish village is like a Native American bringing a cowboy with arrows in his back and bringing him into Dodge City. You can be pretty sure that when the guy gets out of the inn, there's going to be a posse ready to deal with him. Like the Samaritan is risking his life. And not only that, he says, here's some money to take care of this guy. And if it costs you more, just tell me and I will pay you when I come back. He's going to come back again into this place. I think Jesus is telling this parable about his own ministry. Except Jesus actually goes even beyond risking his life to care for the broken and the bruised, the helpless who are lying half dead by the side of the road. Jesus doesn't just risk his life. Jesus gives his life sacrifices his life. And I believe that until you see yourself not just as the person who needs a little adjustment to your loving, but until you see the person as half dead who needs to be resurrected, needs Jesus to take you in and care for you, you'll never really understand what it means to love. And you certainly will never have the power to love. One of the most common teachings in the Bible, and unfortunately one of the most commonly ignored, is that God's love is love for his enemies, not his friends. One of my favorite uh, places to see this is in Romans chapter 5, where it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Ephesians chapter 2 similarly says that we were by nature children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved, and this not of yourself. If you want to ask Bible, what does it mean to talk about grace? The answer in Ephesians 2, grace is God making dead people alive. And until you see that nothing short of that will do for your situation, you're very far away from understanding what it means to love anybody, particularly your enemies. Frederick Buechner has this amazing quote. Maybe you've heard this before. He says, the love for equals is a human thing, a friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice, the love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man, the world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is the love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. God's love is so much bigger than we think. His call to love is so much bigger than we think. But so is the love that he shows to us. Let me show you one more passage. It's in Galatians chapter 4, and I have this uh, on your paper, so if you want to see the, the text, you can read with me there. This is Paul writing to people who he dearly loved, who have now become his enemy. He had stayed with them. He had preached the gospel to them. He actually was waylaid there because of an illness. He didn't plan to preach the gospel to them, but he preached the gospel to them. They got converted. And then after a while, he left. And then he got word of some other people that went in there and had turned these people against Paul. What is he to do? He's heard now that these people that used to love him so dearly now hate him. I think he could have just went on to more fruitful fields of ministry. There's a lot of places in the ancient world that needed to know about Jesus. Paul was a busy, important guy. He could have just sort of said, well, you know, I gave them the gospel. They really got it. You know, it's their fault. They didn't stick with it. I'm sorry, but I'm moving on. But that isn't what he does. He writes these words to the Galatians. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people, meaning these people that have come in after Paul, are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, 
so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. To me, this is one of the most remarkable expressions of love in the Bible. And I love that the Apostle Paul says, I'm perplexed and I don't know what to do about you. Because I'll tell you, if you've never been perplexed trying to love somebody, you really haven't tried to love. I don't think you get perplexed just trying to be nice. Sometimes it takes a supreme act of your will to smile. But it doesn't lead to this, the pain of childbirth. That's a pretty, that's a pretty graphic image. It's a pretty graphic image in our own day. It was brutal in the first century. And Paul says, that's what it feels like because of my love for you, groaning as in childbirth. But understand, the suffering that made him feel like this is self-induced. I mean, you, you could say, Paul, you don't have to be feeling like that. Just wash your hands of these people and move on to people that like you. Don't we do that? I will tell you in all seriousness, college is a very difficult and dangerous time for you relationally. And maybe not for the reason you think I'm going to say. The reason I think college is so dangerous for you relationally is because it's so easy when relationships get difficult to just move on to another group. And one day, probably right when you get out of college, you'll realize, wow, it's hard to find people. <laughs> if now you're not learning how to love people that are difficult and how to persevere in relationships, pretty soon you're going to wake up one day and you're going to find there's nobody around. There's not another little group just to move to. I mean that. Don't take the easy way out. But I understand what I'm asking when I say that. Because for Paul to continue to love these people rather than to move on to people that he knew would receive him and enjoy him meant for him to feel perplexed and to feel like he was going through the pains of childbirth. Have you felt that? And if you felt that, have you stayed in that? That's what it means to love. Why does he do that? Because his goal for them is so much bigger than these false teachers. See, the false teachers just want followers. They just want people to like them. And if that's your goal, you can probably find some people to do that. You'll probably lose yourself in the process. Because to get everybody to like you means you can't really ever be yourself. Right? But for some people, the fear of loneliness is so great that that's a trade-off you'll make. But if, you're, if your goal is big enough, this is what love will feel like. What's Paul's goal? Paul's goal is to see Christ formed in them. And he longs for it so much that it's physically making him feel like he's having a baby. <laughs> right? Because... He can't let them go. They're his dear children. 
right? Now, it's no wonder that these false teachers want followers because if they are believing what they're teaching the Galatians, then the one thing we know about them is that they're radically insecure and miserable. How do we know that? Well, because when the Galatians began to believe what these false teachers were teaching, that's exactly what happened to them. When they understood the gospel, and the gospel, as Paul described it, was Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners. And if you put your faith in Christ, then God looks at you as beautiful in his sight as having done everything that's required because Jesus lived the death, lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. As the great hymn writer Horatius Boner said one time, upon a death I did not die, upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. That's the gospel they believed. And when they believed it, it brought joy to their life. It brought sacrificial love to them. Paul says, you would have torn out your eyes. You treated me like I was Jesus himself. But then this false teaching came in. And what was the false teaching? The false teaching said, for God to really love you, you have to keep doing all the right stuff. And as soon as they began to believe that, they began to be radically insecure. They lost all their joy. They began to bite and devour one another, as the letter tells us. And so, of course, you know, these, these false teachers want followers. They need somebody to, to sort of pump them up and make them feel good about themselves, right? But look at how Paul loves them. He doesn't back down, even though he doesn't know what to do. And he tells them he doesn't know what to do. I love that. Now, here's the question. Well, two questions. The first is, do you groan for Christ to be formed in people? Or are you merely content for them to like you? Or if your idol is more like mine, comfort, are you merely content for them to leave you alone? <laughs> or do you really groan for Christ to be formed in the people you know? And then the second question, do you groan for Christ to be formed in you? Because if you don't groan for people, for Christ to be formed in people, can you at least groan for yourself to want that? You follow what I'm saying? If you don't groan for other people, you don't really love them. It's as clear as that. You may have come in here tonight feeling like you're pretty good with love. If you don't groan for Christ to be formed in people, you don't really love them. So what will you do with that? I would say you need to begin with groaning for yourself that you would begin to take on the heart of God. And how do you do that? You need to hear who's groaning for you. See, Paul didn't come up with that language just out of the blue. He didn't just say, oh, I know, I know a really great evocative phrase that I'm going to use here that will really get them. No, he's echoing something that God had already said, and he's sort of taking it on himself. Do you know this? In the book of Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, it says that God, well, God says this in, in Isaiah 42, that I am like a, a, a pregnant woman. I pant. I scream. God describes himself as a pregnant woman screaming as in the pains of childbirth until all things are made right. And Paul, that scripture has so sunk into him that you know, like 1 John 4 said, as God loves us, 
so we're to love. You need to understand, God loves you to the point where it makes him want to scream like a woman in childbirth. And he won't back down. It's why Jesus went to a cross and screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's committed to Christ being formed in you. It's why the Holy Spirit, even now it says in Romans chapter 8, is groaning with the whole creation, with words, or with, with groans too deep for words until all things are made right. Do you understand? The whole Trinity is groaning for you and for this world to be a place where God's love is reflected. Do you want that? I will tell you, if you're going to long for that and to work for that and offer yourself up as part of the answer to that groaning of God, it will cause you to groan. But what did you think it would look like to have Christ formed in you? Did you think that it would allow you just to sort of walk on by and just, you know, be happy all the time? Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And all those who want to follow him will have to taste that as well. Because loving in a broken world will tear your heart out. And that's why it's so vital that we know and rely on the love God has for us. I think that verse, 1 John 4, that verse there, is one of those paradigm-shifting verses. I remember the first time I heard it, and somebody said, now you realize what that's saying. It's not saying that we know and rely on our love for God. Because I get to tell you, growing up in churches, that's basically the message I heard all the time. You need to love God, and you're going to go to church so that you can sort of get your emotions sort of worked up so that you can continue to love God. And basically, you're going to rely on that love, and when you're, when you're feeling down, well, you just need to stick it out and try harder. I never understood the freedom that came from relying on the love God has for us, because that's my only hope, because when I try to love, I realize over and over again how far I fall short of God's love. And the way God has set it up is that when you try to love, you fail and you come back again and again and you say, God, help me. Give me your heart, not only for others, but even for me. Help me to remember that you're committed to completing the good work you began and that you're groaning until all things are made right and that you won't give up on me. And may that perseverance bring forth perseverance for me. I know it's hard because we're all perfectionists and we're like, so you're telling me that I'm going to fail at loving for the rest of my life saying yes. And in doing that, you're going to have to go deeper and deeper into the love of God and trust it more and more and more. And the more you fall and collapse upon the love of God for enemies and for people who suck at loving, the more it's going to open up your heart. So it's not like you're going to just kind of learn a little trick or two and, and perfectionistically be able to just get this down and then sort of move on. No. The road of Christianity is a road that leads you again and again to depending upon Jesus, knowing and relying on the love God has for us. That's what we're invited into. Let's pray together.